0: If you have a Bible, turn over to Galatians chapter 2. We're going through an amazing book, and um, before we jump into it, Galatians is a six-chapter book. First two chapters, Paul is really making the case that he is an apostle worthy of the title of apostle, and in fact, bringing the real gospel. So for the last several weeks, we've been just seeing Paul making this rock-solid argument that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, and the gospel he brings is the real gospel, And really, chapters 3 and 4 then launches into probably one of the most theologically profound chapters of the New Testament, as Paul talks about the implications of all that that means, and then chapters 5 and 6 ends with two chapters of how do we live this out? What does this look like in the way we are living our lives together? Before we jumped into that section, I thought, you know, we want to focus on chapter 2, verse 20, because Paul crams into there so much amazing truth. Uh, This is what I call one of the game-changer verses of the New Testament. And and what I mean by that is, as we live in a a society and a culture that is growing more and more, uh, less and less familiar with Scripture and biblical truth, Uh, Yet at the same time, we still have this remnant idea of what Christianity is about. So so even if you're not a Christian, people are familiar with the famous passages of Scripture like John chapter 3, verse 16, the Golden Rule, uh, the Parable of the Good Samaritan, Ten Commandments, those kinds of things. And and by and large, those aren't the verses of the Bible that rearrange the furniture of your life, so to speak, in that they're not necessarily, John three sixteen notwithstanding, they're not necessarily the engine of what makes the Christian life so effective. By and large, in our culture, in, in what Francis Schaeffer would say, a Christ-haunted culture like our own that's so heavenly influenced by Judeo-Christian values, people expect these kind of sentiments. They expect, because Christianity has had such a significant influence, they expect Of course God loves me. It doesn't move them to hear that. They expect that we should do to other people what we want them to do to us. They expect that we ought to be compassionate people. That's just not pertinent to Christianity. They would expect that all religious systems teach that. So in that sense, they're not the engine of what makes Christianity distinct and unique. Well, there are passages, many passages in the New Testament, that are actually the ones that are very, what I call, the engines of our faith being compassionate, uh, knowing God loves us, being good to others is more or less the result of this engine of our faith. It is not the engine itself. And a lot of times, people mistake the result to be the engine, and because they don't actually have the engine to drive it and they can't continue the result on their own, they get a little discouraged and they feel like, why isn't Christianity working for me? And so instead of just reading past this as we did last week, I thought we want to stop and spend at least a moment to talk about this massive game changer of a verse of Scripture. You realize in three sentences, 45 words, Paul drops some amazing truth. He just crams it in there that is so important to understand. What makes the Christian life go? So, and he does it in three brilliant ways. We'll put them up on the screen behind you. Galatians 2.20, let me read it to you first in case you might not be familiar with it. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, this one verse has three distinct sections, as you can see. Ironically enough, Paul is saying that new life in Christ begins with death. That's a very counterintuitive thought. The death of the old life, that's Galatians 2:20a. Then there's a second section in Galatians 2.20 where Paul is saying that Christ, not sin, is now the operative power in the Christian's life. And then the third part of this one verse, Galatians 2.20c, he says, as a result, because our life is His since His life is ours. That's the kind of interpretation that I'm making of those three sections. We can easily believe that Christianity, uh, living for God, being a Christian, is us trying to live for Jesus. That's a common misperception. That's a common perception, I mean, but I think it's a misperception because Christianity is not so much me living for Jesus. According to Paul, it is Jesus living through me. That little turn of phrase is not just to be rhetorically cute. That's the difference in understanding religion and the gospel. It is not me trying through my own strength and willpower because I will always fail to live for Jesus as much as it is Jesus living His life through me. That's what Paul is saying here. So, when we become a Christian, it's not so much a matter of us taking on kind of these uh, principles and truths, uh, to, uh, and we adopt it into our lives. As much as it is, Christianity replaces our life, right? It's not something we just adopt into whatever we are doing already. I'm doing okay, but I just need probably a little spiritual mojo, and Jesus will supply that. That's not how that works. Christianity is saying, I'm replacing your life entirely, And so, our view of reality, the values that drive us, the priorities I set, everything is now set not by my desires or your desires, they're set by God. That's what Paul is fundamentally saying in Galatians 2.20. You can see why I didn't want us to just read it along other verses we did last week. I thought we should stop at least one week this week, or in, in this series, and talk about this amazing verse So, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at each of these incredibly dense sentences one at a time. Let's take a look at the first one. We've got the first half of Galatians, the first part of Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes. New life begins with death. Paul starts off most counterintuitively in our culture that our new life in Christ begins first with our death with Christ. You realize that to be a Christian, to have the new life in Christ that He promises to give to all, it begins by your death with Christ. And Paul's statement here in Galatians 2.20 is deliberately bold. It's deliberately shocking to emphasize the finality of what this means, that my old life has come to an end. I'm not negotiating with Jesus. I've completely surrendered to Him. And He owns it all. This concept of life and death is similar throughout all the New Testament, particularly in the book of Romans. Now, I just want to let you know that ahead of time, we will be jumping back between Romans and a couple other places in Galatians. So keep your finger in Galatians, and I want you to just briefly go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to spend some time in Romans, so you might want to, I don't know if you got one of these things, but put it in the book of Romans chapter 6. One of the reasons that Romans is such a powerful book, if you're new to reading your Bibles, is that Romans is one of the only books that Paul penned, not not Peter, not John, not the other New Testament writers, Romans is one of the only books that Paul penned that was not in response to a situation, but was just his articulating the Christian worldview, the Christian view of reality and understanding in the book of Romans. So, for that reason, it's a a gem of a book to study and read. All the other books, including what we're reading, Galatians, is in response to situations. He penned Romans to the Roman Christians to say, I want you to know all about what the Christian life is. And so, it's a very powerful and dense book. So, Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, we see the same theme that Paul was getting at. We know with Him, excuse me, we know our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. Okay, so that I just want to point out that that same theme in Galatians 2 comes up in Romans chapter 6. Paul is saying he's not the man he used to be. That when Christ died on the cross, Paul, in a sense, is saying, I was up there with Him. Paul is saying that Christians, when they come to become a Christian, they are up there with Christ. And the language of the passage in Galatians tells us Paul's intention is if this is a settled way that we live our lives. The whole idea Paul is getting at is that there's no other alternative for him. There is no escape route. When he came to Christ, he didn't leave himself a back door that he could get out if he didn't like what was going on. There was no 30-day money-back guarantee for Paul. There was no other options in life except Christ. One of the reasons Paul probably bore so much fruit for the Lord is because he left himself no other option but to be with Christ. You know, for you history buffs or nuts, whatever the word might be, uh, you might recall the story, maybe a legend of Hernando Cortez when Spain had sent him to colonize this newfound country of Mexico. Cortez in 1519, uh, leadership magazines love to quote this, told his man that all 11 ships that brought them over from Spain to the New World were to be burned to ashes. Because in Cortez's mind, it was either going to be success. Or death. And Cortez insisted that there be no possible escape for he and his men, that they were either going to succeed or they were going to die trying. I think Cortez, you know, being a Catholic, might be familiar with Paul's mentality that it was going to be all in or nothing at all. So the question is as we read this striking statement, and, and maybe you're too used to the words crucifixion. If you've been in a church, you're used to that. It's, it's maybe domesticated to you. Paul would said, I have been executed with Christ. I have been gassed with Christ. I've been electric chaired with Christ. The question we have to ask is, are there other options on the table when we come to Christ? Are there other things that we've left on the table just in case He doesn't work out, you know? Maybe in your mind, is there a plan B if Jesus doesn't work out for you? Paul says that that can't be the mentality. You have to be all in for Christ. Have you so associated yourself with Christ that all of your values, all of your priorities, all your sense of of, of rights, all that you have is submitted to His Lordship? That you could say, in a very real sense, that those things are dead to you. That you, you don't claim to them. They're totally gone, nailed to the cross. They were to Paul. They were to the early believers, many of the disciples, many of whom actually literally got crucified for their love for Christ. They were. To a young missionary, 28 years old, by the name of Jim Elliott, many of you are familiar with him, some of you are not, who so crucified his life with Christ that he gave everything for the Alka Indians to come to know Jesus as their Savior. And he and many of his young friends at the age of 28, 27, 26, lost their lives bringing the gospel to the Alka Indians, who, by the way, now there's a thriving church there if you know the story. In his journal, his wife. His young wife found written these words No fool is he that gives up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. No fool is he that gives up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. The first part of this game changing reality of the Christian life is your old self is dead. Your claim to your wants and dreams and desires and ambitions, everything, crucified. Now, that that doesn't mean it's not important to God. It doesn't mean that it may not be part of God's greater plan. They just mean that you're not hanging on to your own life as much as you are now hanging on to the life of Christ. You see, the, the life of Christ friends, is impossible without the life of Christ. It's just the reality. We cannot do this on our own, can we? We fail all the time. The life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ, and that's what Paul is trying to say. The way you get there, the very first step, is the death of your own life, to have His life, because there can only be one king. It's either going to be you or Christ the King. And if it's going to be Christ, it begins with you being crucified with Him. Now, let me be clear here. Growing, growing as a believer is always an incremental process, yeah? It is always a step forward, maybe a couple steps back, a couple steps forward. Growing as a Christian is always an incremental process. But deciding to be one is an all-or-nothing choice. You are either crucified or not crucified with Christ. There's no kind of being crucified any more than a woman can kind of be pregnant, right? It doesn't work that way. It is either you are or you're not. And Paul's saying there's there's no kind of here. You're either crucified or you're not crucified. But that's the first step that Paul is getting at. This new life in Christ, this radical new life, and the power with which to live it starts when you give up ownership of your old life. That's just just the first few words of the verse. The second part of this verse, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. We talked about that. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ, not sin is now the operative power in the believer's life. That's Galatians 2.20b. We just read that. You know, it's it's really important as we think about Christianity and, and this kind of changing culture, people tend to ask two really important questions about Jesus. I think they're both very valid. The Bible answers them in vivid detail, but they're very important to kind of get in order correctly. So, The first kind of question people ask is, what will Jesus do for me? Right? The second kind of question that's going to be asked of Jesus is, What did Jesus do for me? Right? So, what will Jesus do for me? Or what has Jesus done for me? And they're both really important questions. The Bible answers them in vivid detail. But I think before you get to the what will Jesus do for me question, you've got to wrestle with the what has Jesus done for me?" question? Because when you know the answer to the "What has Jesus done for me?" question, it actually totally reshapes the way you're going to ask the "What will Jesus do for me?" questions. Does That makes sense? So when you think of it this way, there is nothing that Jesus will do for you that can ever compare or beat what Jesus has done for you already. Does that make sense? So, we really rightly want to know, what can Jesus do for me now? That's really important, right? You need to answer that question for your friends, your coworkers, your family. But the way you answer that question with power and effectiveness actually first is rooted in understanding what Jesus has done for us already. And the answer to that is that Jesus has answered the problem that faces humanity. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know what that problem is. Our greatest problem is sin. And that word is so used where we're not, it, it, it kind of, you go, oh, I was expecting that, checking out. Jesus set us free from sin in a radical way. Now, I, I want you to write down, if you're a note taker, Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 14. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn over there. We're going we're gonna to look at that in a moment. But I just want to, I found this writer, it was a quote about sin, and I think he has some good points. I just want to put it on the screens. He writes this, sin is a blasting presence and every fine power shrinks and withers in the destructive heat of it. Every spiritual delicacy succumbs to its malignant touch Sin impairs sight and works towards blindness. Sin benumbs the hearing and tends to make us deaf. Sin perverts the taste, causing men and women to confound the sweet with the bitter and the bitter with the sweet. Sin hardens the touch and eventually renders a man past feeling. Sin is not a thing man does, Sin is the way we are. What what I think was so powerful about this, but I just want to tweak with this just a little bit. Sin does make us blind and it does make us deaf, but here's the thing that's even more dangerous about sin. In the process of blinding us and making us deaf, it makes us think we still see and still hear. That's what makes sin much, much worse. Because when I'm physically blind, I will put into my life things that help me navigate my world. When I'm physically deaf, I will set things around me so that I can realize and navigate through this world. But when I'm blind and deaf and don't realize it, there's nothing to prevent a fall, to wander away, to end up someplace I shouldn't be. That's the power of sin. And that's the power that Christ broke us from. Romans chapter 6. Let's get back to Romans. Such a powerful book. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 14, Paul writes this. For if we have been united with Him, same theme, yeah, in Galatians. For if we have been united with Him in death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self, like that word, was crucified with Him, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members, so your, your, your extremities of what makes you human, whether it be your physical or your, your capacity to think, dream, envision, remember. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace." Now, this is itself a whole sermon series because Scripture is telling us we have been able, we've been set free from sin, but the existential reality is we still struggle with it, right? So, that's a whole other sermon series. But again, that's the what will he do question. We need to focus. We're focusing on what he has done, and Scripture tells us sin in, 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 its, in its power, in its penalty, in its presence has been broken completely in phenomenal, exhaustive ways, so I want to put on the slide, the screens behind me, the ways that sin has been completely destroyed in those who are crucified with Christ, dead to their old selves, but now alive to God. Sin's power has been broken in its past, in its presence, in its future dynamic. The penalty for sin has been paid for, right? Because we are justified in Christ, which is what we've been learning about, its penalty has been taken care of. We have been positionally claimed innocent, right? We are justified. That's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The penalty of sin has been broken. Positionally speaking, as God sees me in His legal court, I'm innocent. If you're in Christ, He says, you're innocent. Positionally speaking, the penalty is done. Right, Jeremiah. If you're a no-taker, write down Jeremiah twenty-three, six. Romans five, nine. These are great passages that talk about this reality. But it's but it's not just in this past sense that I am positionally uh, the, the righteous and the penalty's been paid. Even in the present, the power of sin has been broken. Paul tells us in Romans six, the power itself has been broken over us, and that's the doctrine of sanctification, how we are growing. Sometimes leaps and bounds, sometimes just baby steps, sometimes I'm just facing in the direction, but we are growing to be more like Christ. So, so write down uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. Those are verses that talk about this incremental growth in Christ because the power of sin has been broken. This is the doctrine of sanctification, So sin in the past, the penalty's been broken through justification. The penalty's been paid positionally, I'm righteous. Practically, I'm growing in righteous. This is the doctrine of sanctification, right? But it's just not the past, it's just not right now. Even in the future, guys, our God has taken care of the whole thing. Not only is the penalty and the power, one day we're going to be freed from the presence of sin. (laughs) Do Do you fathom that? When I was a new Christian, it was really cool because you think, oh, in heaven I get gold, gold streets, right, mansions, all this stuff. The more I've been, the longer I stay a Christian, to me the great reward is just I'm, I'm, I'm not beset by sin. And the more you're aware of your own sin, the more you go, yeah, that's true. That to me is heaven. You can have your streets of gold, you can have your mansion, I don't need all that. I just don't want to have the downward pull anymore, right? And the Bible says we've been freed from its very presence, and that's the doctrine of glorification. And and I just really… So, this week, I've been spending a lot of time reading this book, The Cross and Salvation. You can get it on Amazon. If you got the Amazon app just after service, check it out, The Cross and Salvation. These doctrines, justification, sanctification, glorification, they're all in this book. Uh, It's a bit pricey. It's like $30, but Christmas is coming up, right? And nothing says I love you like a, a book on doctrine, right? So, get this book. It's amazing because th- we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. These guys have got chapter and chapter on each of these that we're only spending 10 minutes on. The power of sin has been broken. And that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Doesn't, that, that the reality is the Bible saying what Jesus has done is He broke sins back. And part of we realizing that is first, as Paul says, being crucified to your old self. You're not wishwashing. You're not on the fence. You are all in. And you recognize that Christ now is the operative power, not sin in past, present, future, in penalty, power, and presence. All these have been taken care of in Christ. Romans chapter 8. Why don't you go with me real quick to Romans chapter 8. Oh, the clock isn't set. I don't know what I'm doing here. Okay, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that's the, the doctrine of sanctification. God says, I, I have already made this a done deal. You're going to be conformed to be like Jesus. In verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. So the very things we're talking about, Paul saying this is what's taking place. God has this taken care of in Christ. But here's the thing that just just to blow your mind, I want to point out to you. For all of you English nerds like me, what tense are the verbs in these verses? Past tense. So what big deal is that, my friends? Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing what is going to happen to believers in Christ that we're going to be predestined, that called, justified, and glorified, and it's such a done deal. This is written in past tense. In Christ, I am not going to have to worry about whether or not I'm going to make it and whether or not I'm going to be glorified. The Scriptures say, look, it's done deal. It's in the grammar itself. Christ Broke the power of sin for those who are in Christ. In order to be in Christ, we have to be crucified with Him. The old life is done and dead, nailed to the cross. Paul is not just spouting out some Christianese. He is building an infrastructure to understand how to live the Christian life. Third point, my life, our life is His since His life is ours. So, go to Galatians 2.20 once more. I want to I w- I read it to you. I have been crucified with Christ, and then implied, therefore, right, implied, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Do you see the order? He is building an argument here carefully. The driving point in this third and final section is that phrase, you see it there, I live by faith. As a result of these things, I live by faith. So the million dollar question for us is what does that mean? If you remember being a, a new Christian, for me it was a kind of frustrating experience Faith, like grace, is a big part of our vocabulary. So, so much in the New Testament is so live by faith. I'd ask, well, what does it mean to live by faith? Well, believe and just do it. Okay, that's helpful. Or somebody would take me to Hebrews 11. Why don't you go to Hebrews 11? We're going to camp out there a little bit. Hebrews 11, if you're new to the New Testament, go to the right. It's kind of by, it's by James. It's after James. No, it's before James. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 11. Sometimes they say, well, what does it mean? Faith, what is that? It's a big part of the Christian life. Can you tell me what that means? Sometimes they would either tell me just, it means believe, or they'd read, take me to Hebrews 11. Now, faith, verse 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. You know, and they'd read that to me and then look at me like, you get it? how we get socialized in churches, we don't want to say, I have no idea what you just said. So, we go, yeah, okay, yeah, thank you. (laughs) But folks, isn't that a sure recipe for confusion in your Christian life? If you read Scripture and you're going, "I I don't understand this, it doesn't do anyone any good to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, as a result, I think a lot of us think kind of like the world, that faith is one of these three options. So I'm going to have on the screen. We think that that faith is possibly a blind act of will, some kind of action that's grounded in, in really no evidence. It's the blind act of our will. Or faith is something like a decision to believe something that is either independent of reason or is a simple choice to believe while ignoring the lack of reason or evidence, Right? Or faith is an action that's actually contrary to evidence but motivated by spiritual fervor. So the more reason not to do something, the more faith you're exercising, right? You've, you've heard these kinds of things. Well, That's very confusing to me. And I think if we're honest, something about it doesn't sound right, that faith is some blind act of will or that there's no evidence for it. And how do we live that way? Well, the reality is Hebrews 11 is helpful. We just need to read a few more verses, but, but let me just offer what I think is a good definition of what faith is as we see, not just in the New Testament, but even the Old Testament. It's going to be on the screens behind me. Faith is a power or skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Faith is a power and skill to act in accordance with the nature of the kingdom of God. It is a power in that it is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives to those who are in Christ. It energizes us to actually do these things. It is a skill in that it's something that we can grow in, hone, and refine. It is a power and the skill to conform our lives according to the nature of God's kingdom. So, the question we have to ask is, well, then, what is the nature of God and His kingdom? And this is what I think Hebrews 11 is such a genius passage to help us understand. If we just look beyond the first verse and read all that it says, you will find that faith is far from a, a fuzzy, vague feeling of something that prompts you to do things occasionally, You'll find something very different. Let's look at Hebrews 11. I'll I'll just kind of highlight them to you. You can just write these down and read them later. Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. Verse 7, by faith, Noah built an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed God. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah received God's promises. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed. Verse 25, by faith, Moses chose to suffer. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab was merciful to the spies by faith, by faith, by faith Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel the prophets, they subdued kingdoms they escaped the swords, they worked righteousness they stopped the lion's mouth what's my point? faith here are actions they are actually doing something but notice particularly verse 11 and verse 19 is talking about uh, uh, Sarah and Abraham. It's this is a little phrase by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. Here it is, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Go down to verse 19, speaking of Abraham. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. In other words, both Abraham and Sarah considered and conceived of the character of God, and because of His character, were able to conform their actions in accordance to His character to promote His kingdom. Faith is God's Word applied. It is not a a pious feeling or a mere emotion. It is the Word of God applied to our lives, even when the situation that it's calling for that application seems ridiculous, but because we consider God's character faithful, because we consider God's commands reliable, we conform our lives to it. And just, just as a point of application, just real quick, I can't think of a more tangible application of when I tell people who are Christians when they first become Christians, I talk about being part of a church, attending Oh, but it's my Sunday. It's like my day off. Say, do you consider God's character reliable? Then trust Him when He says, give Him that day and watch Him give you the rest and that you think you need, that you'll get from just whatever it is you plan to do that morning. Say, hey, are are you giving generously of the finances that God gives to you? What are you talking about? I can't give away 10% of my income. Are you nuts? By faith, do you consider God's character when He knows you can get by on 90%? You see, Christianity has built in so many practical ways that challenge the conventional thinking, and it comes down to, do I consider God's character reliable, that by faith I will act in accordance to the nature of His kingdom? And that means I give of my time. That means I give of my finances. All the things of my life I'm giving away, that that this world tells us, "No, no, 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 keep it, hoard it, you need more of it. The Bible says, no, 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 open up your fingers, let go of it. You actually need less of this. That's by faith. So understood this way, let's look back at Galatians 2.20. I live in or I live by means of the power and skill to act in accordance to the kingdom of God in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when we read it that way, it makes a lot more sense. I live by means of this power given to me by the Spirit and this skill that I've honed and refined to live my life in accordance to the kingdom of God in the Son of God, in Christ, who, by the way, the reason I do this, we do this, is because He loved us and died for us. Romans 8.32, He who gave us His own Son, wouldn't He give you everything else that you need? Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser, and the answer is Absolutely. The great thing about this realization of faith is that this is not something that just the few spiritual ones get, right? So the really mature spiritual people get faith and the rest of us are bench warmers, right? That's not how this works. What this means is that all of us who want it, it's available to all of us who pursue it. But because it is a skill, it's not something that's just going to be given to you and then you're done. You don't have to worry about it. We need to hone it. We need to grow in faith. Last passage I want to cite to you this morning. 2 Peter, you don't have to turn there, let me just read it. 2 Peter chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Peter writes this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter's saying, look, you got faith, that's great, but that's just the beginning. Add to that these elements and build and build and build. If you're doing that, you will never be unfruitful and you won't be ineffective. Build onto your faith. We really could have had three sermons from this verse, but um, one's enough. As we close, we need to ask ourselves, have we come to the place that I'm crucified to Christ, or am I on the fence with Jesus, or have I come to Him just thinking you're going to help me out, but I don't intend for you to be my Lord? Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you, like John the Baptist said, he must increase, I need to decrease? Secondly, are we still submitting ourselves as slaves to sin or slaves to Jesus Christ? You guys know the prophet Dylan, Bob Dylan? He said it best, right? You got to serve somebody. Mark Twain, brilliant social commentator said, look, I do not oppose slavery because men are not fit to be slaves. He says, I oppose slavery because men are not fit to be masters. Look, we, we all will serve somebody. Are we presenting ourselves to sin to serve sin? Or are we presenting ourselves to the king to serve the king? And finally, if, if faith is a skill that you can hone and develop, what are we doing as individuals, as a church, to hone and refine and grow that skill? That's Paul's point in Galatians 2.20. Let's pray. Father, as we come before You, our hearts are full as we come to worship You this morning. And thank You that You've even given to us means like the Lord's Supper to remind us of this solidarity to Christ, as the bread and the cup remind us of the life and death of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that there is not a person in this room that would not come up to receive the elements who has not made that commitment to You. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that we would not receive unworthily, but that we would receive these elements because we understand what they mean, that we are now slaves of righteousness because we have been crucified to Christ. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pray, Lord, that we as your people would be encouraged and you would be honored by the symbolic act of your people again living their lives for you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.